0: to welcome you uh, here with us. We are in Mark chapter 13, and if ever there's a Sunday to, to use your own Bibles, or the one in the seat back in front of you, or on your iPhone, whatever you use your Bible on, this is the one to do it. Of course, we always put the, put the scriptures up on the screen, but you're going to want to go um, to your own Bibles today, because we're going to be flipping and turning at a couple of points throughout uh, the message here today. Let me say a word of prayer, and we're going to continue on um, seeking the Lord in His Word. Father, as we just proclaimed and declared, and I pray it's, it's not only is it true that we believe this with our with our voices as we sing, but that we believe it in our heart. That you are our living hope. There is no other hope in this world. Lord, I pray that all of us would be able to come to that place in our lives when we can declare you are our living hope and cast aside all the other things that we hope in to give us life, to make everything okay, to save us. Thank you, Lord, that you came to save us. Lord, as we seek you today, as we see how all of this culminates, the end of times culminates in this epic chapter of Mark. We pray that you would use it in a powerful way in our lives. Speak to us from your word. Drive your light of truth into dark places in our soul. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Mark chapter 13, uh, during family dinner this past week, uh, for some reason, the new series, some of you might know it, The Last of Us. Uh, came up. Some of you might be fans of The Last of Us. I haven't seen it. I just know the the basic idea. It's like these two survivors in this um, sort of uh, post-virus America. And of course, they're zombies. Of course, they're zombies. It's always zombies. And so we're talking about it just briefly brought up. And Nathan, just in his frustration, says, if I hear about another show about the apocalypse, I'm going to explode. Or something like that. And it's kind of true, right? Because there's a lot of shows, there's a lot of movies about the end, isn't there? There's a lot of stuff out there right now about a dystopian world. And however the apocalypse comes about in these shows, whether it's through, you know, zombies or aliens or it's through climate change or a nuclear war or a supervillain or a virus, One way or another, this culture, our pop culture, is obsessed with the end. Isn't that true? Now, I think the reason that these shows are so popular, maybe one of the reasons, partly is because some of these ideas don't seem all that far-fetched in today's world. I mean, some of them do, but others kind of like, yeah, I could see that happening in the world in which we live. Doesn't it kind of feel, at times, that this world is kind of a tinderbox waiting for someone to light the match? Doesn't it feel like at times this world is hanging on by threads? Doesn't it feel like this idea that maybe we once had in our naivety that the world is, is kind of getting better, you know, the, the world is up and to the right all the time, that, that you know, eventually the society is going to turn into utopia? That dream, for most of us, has probably faded in the last 10 years if you had it. We are not under the guise that utopia is gonna come through technology or science or evolution or through being green, and it's definitely not gonna come through politics. Now, does that mean we throw up our hands in the air and we turn into grumpy old men and women and just say, well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket? I don't even know what a handbasket is. No, that's not what we do. But it ought to create in us a longing for another world. It ought to create in us a longing for the world of our dreams, for a, a new self, for a new society, for a new king and a new kingdom. In other words, it ought to cause us to long for the return. Of our King Jesus to this earth. And that is where Jesus is ultimately heading in the conclusion of what we're calling the Olivet, or what is called the Olivet Discourse. It's a sermon that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple in Jerusalem in Mark 13. And throughout all this teaching, he's been preparing his disciples to be resilient facing the challenges that are in their day and the days ahead. He's preparing them for the destruction of the temple. In 70 A.D., which would be in a, within a generation from the time of the disciples, but it's, this message throughout is also for us, because he's preparing them for the end of days before the ushering in of his second coming, his return. And so throughout this text, he's, he's less concerned about dates and facts. He's more concerned about how we live, about preparing us in the in between preparing us for the time between his first coming and his second coming, the what we often call the already and the not yet, the reality of living in a broken world, the reality of living with brokenness inside of us and with evil and injustice in the world. How do we live now? That's primarily Jesus's point, and he's been doing this throughout the chapter. Verses 1 to 8, he prepares them to discern, be discerning of the times, so they don't fall prey to false teachers or false signs uh, that are to come. In verses 9 to 13, he prepares them to expect persecution, that this isn't going to be all puppies and roses. This is going to be tough times. you got to be prepared to be resilient in your faith. Last week, verses 14 to 23, he prepared them to see the sign of the times, to be able to recognize it when it comes to the temple of Jerusalem, and when, eventually, the pattern, when it comes in the future. And now, here in verses 24 to 37, in the conclusion, he's going to paint a word picture of how everything's going to go down at the end, All, how it's going to go down, and then what it's going to look like when he returns. But again, he's most concerned about the disciples then and the disciples today of how we're gonna prepare for his return. And so that's where we're gonna land the plane eventually. Now, the outline for today's message, I could not help but to borrow it from R.E.M. song, hit song in 1987. Many of you know what it is. It's the end of the world and I feel fine. Remember that? It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine, although I'm going to scratch out the word fine, and I feel prepared, okay? So that that's, fits a little bit better with where we're going to go, okay? So it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel prepared. So let's talk about the end of the world as Jesus knows it. Verse 24. But in those days, following that distress, now pause, what distress is he talking about? Remember, the distress he's talking about is the great tribulation, that period at the end where there's tribulation on earth, especially for those who bear the name of Jesus, okay? Following that distress, then he says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the skies and the heavenly bodies will be shaken, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the heavens, excuse me, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, to truly understand this text, we need to spend a few minutes doing eschatology 101. That is end times theology 101, okay? And so we're going to, this just became a seminary, and I'm Professor Keeler, right? Just for a few minutes, let's take you there. We need to understand what's going on. There's something in the Old Testament prophecy that comes up over and over again, and it's something called the Day of the Lord. Might be familiar for some of us, the Day of the Lord. And it's very relevant here because Jesus is quoting a variety of day of the Lord prophecies from the Old Testament in this little statement. Let me show you one that's really clear. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 13. Okay, Isaiah 13 is like in the middle of your Bible. Isaiah thir- 13. Now, some context for this prophecy this prophecy is given by the prophet Isaiah, who's a prophet of Israel. And it's given against Babylon, Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, in the year 700 BC, about 700 years before Jesus ever shows up on the scene. And in this prophecy, God is proclaiming his coming judgment upon the empire for their wickedness, all right? So Isaiah 13, look at verse 9 and 10, see, here's our phrase, the day of the Lord is coming. A cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. Verse 13, therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will shake from its place. Does it sound familiar? Thumb back to Mark 13, and look, you'll see it's almost, it's almost a direct parallel to some of the language that Jesus is using. Almost identical language of Jesus using this kind of hyperbolic, um, prophetic language of the heaven shaking, of the stars falling, of the, the sun and the moon not giving its light. What's he saying? He's saying the things that are stable... The things that you count on, the things that seem really powerful, guess what? Things are changing. There there is disaster coming. There is chaos coming to the planet. That is his point. Now, where is this going to come from? How is it going to happen? Again, go back to Isaiah 13, verses four and five. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war, they come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. Again, look familiar. Go back to Mark 13. What do you see? It says something similar. Jesus is gathering his angels and his elect from the four corners of the earth. The same kind of day of the Lord language. Now, in the case of Isaiah 13, the army that God is mustering to bring judgment upon Babylon We find out in verse 17 of Isaiah 13 that it was a a people called the Medes, the Medes. And what we find out in history, 70 years after this prophecy, in 614 BC, God in his sovereign and just power uses the Medes to come and conquer the Babylonian Empire and sack it, sack this nation, destroy it, and take over, just as the Bible prophesied. This is the day of the Lord. Okay? You guys, so far you everybody tracking with me? Yeah? Say, oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Barely. Barely. Okay, we'll keep going. Let me show you one other day of the Lord prophecy from Daniel. So thumb over to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. It's a, a vision that Daniel receives. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was One like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. That's another word for the another phrase for the Father, God the Father, and was led into his presence. He, who's the he, it's the Son of Man, the one that's son of the man riding on the clouds. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." Again, does this sound familiar? Is there any language that Jesus is using? Yes. Son of man, riding on the clouds, power, glory. What's Jesus saying? I'm the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel. I'm the son of man. I'm the one that's going to come on the clouds bringing power and glory and ultimately to bring my kingdom that will reign forever and ever. Okay? So that's like a quick like five minute eschatology one-on-one on the phrase, the day of the Lord. So what can we learn about the day of the Lord prophecies in the Old Testament that help us understand Jesus's words in Mark 13? Well, two things. One... The day of the Lord displays God's just judgment against wickedness. This is really clear, and it's really important to see in Jesus' words here about the end times and to recognize that the second coming of Jesus will not be a time of rejoicing for most on the planet. Then I can be like, oh, he's coming, yay, woohoo, throw a party. No, this day is going to be one of destruction. It's gonna be one of judgment, of destroying evil and wickedness. What Jesus describes here in just a few sentences, the book of Revelation, chapter 19, describes in vivid detail. And we don't have time to go and look at all those verses, but it describes Jesus as one who's riding into a battle on a white war horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and the armies of heaven with him. I mean, it is wild stuff. Now, I realize that this kind of imagery of Jesus, for many of us, is is unsettling, isn't it? This idea of Jesus coming for war and wrath, and destruction. I mean, we don't prefer to think about Jesus in those terms. We prefer to think about Jesus as the, you know, Jesus meek and mild, right? Jesus, uh, love and peace Jesus. You know, holding and kissing babies Jesus. I don't know what you think about, but those are some of the things. This isn't the Jesus as pictured here. Here's what we need to understand about what scripture says. When Jesus came the first time, he came in weakness. Jesus came to bring peace, to show a better way. Jesus came to bear our sins on the wood of a cross as our suffering servant. But when Jesus returns, when he comes a second time, the Bible says that he will come in power. He will come bearing justice. He will come with the armies of heaven as a conquering king. And that means that some of us need to adjust our image of Jesus. It means for some of us, we need to take Jesus out of the box that we have him in, okay? Some of us have packed him in, nice and tight, you know, this domesticated Jesus that always loves everything I love and, you know, is cool with my life. It's not the Jesus that is coming. There's parts of him that are that he's 100% love and peace, absolutely, but he is also a God of justice, and he will deal with the world. Now, that's the first thing that we need to know about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord displays God's just judgment against wickedness. The second thing that we can learn is that Jesus is coming to rule forever and ever and ever. The day of the Lord, yes, it's a day of terror for those who are in rebellion against God, but it's a day of rejoicing for those who see Jesus as their king. We have nothing to fear about this coming day of the Lord if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ. Revelation 20 and 21, again, we don't have time to go there, but it paints the picture of what it will look like when he returns. It describes a world where Jesus, in his reign, will end all pain. Jesus will wipe away all tears. He will end war. He will end injustice. He will end conflicts, and he will end sin. I cannot wait for the day when I don't battle temptation and sin in my life. We will become the people that we always dreamed we could become. And most importantly, we will be with our Savior forever and ever. The old order of the earth, under the curse of sin and death, will be removed, and it will be replaced by the new order of heaven, the world that our soul longs for. This is coming. So, it's the end of the world as we know it. Now let's talk about... Feeling prepared? How do we prepare for it? Because Jesus is going to prepare us for His return. He uses two parables to do so. For the sake of time, I'm going to summarize the first because the lesson is super basic. Is verses 28 to 31, where Jesus uses the image of a fig tree, and he says, "Hey, you know how you know that um, that the fig is going to the fig tree is going to bear fruit? You can tell by the budding in the spring. So the budding in the spring." pretty much guarantees that in the summer the fruit is going to come. In the same way, these signs that he's already talked about, the temple destruction and the the future pattern of that, those signs show that his return is coming, right? That he is going to be returning soon. That's the whole point of that parable. Now, if you look at verse 30, this is a verse that kind of trips some people up, where it says that this generation will not pass away before these things happen. And people get all tied up in knots to say, what exactly does Jesus means? What generation is he talking about? Personally, I believe it's both generations. Jesus is saying the generation that's, that I'm talking to right now, the disciples, that generation will not pass away before the destruction of the temple. A generation in Jesus' day was often considered 40 years. When was the temple destroyed? 70 AD, do your math, 40 years. I think Jesus is talking about that generation, but he's also talking about the future generation, that that great tribulation that's going to happen in the future, that generation will not pass away before Jesus returns. So I think he's talking about both. Now, he gives a second parable. And the second parable starts in verse 32. He says, but about that day, Or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So tell that to those people that try to put dates to it. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. For it is like a man going away, and he leaves his house, and he puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether it's in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. I can't help but think of the song. I wish we all been ready. Some of you know that song. Anyway, verse 36. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. When I say to you, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Okay. How many of you have ever been caught sleeping when you're not supposed to be asleep? Okay, some of you that happens at work, and you've been busted at your desk drooling on your, uh, you know, your keyboard. Some of you have been, some of you have fallen asleep while driving. Don't do that. Okay, pull over to the side of the road. And just a, a little public service announcement for you today. Some of you, um, some of you have fallen asleep in conversations. Um, I once fell asleep over the phone in college with my girlfriend as she was going in detail about her bad day. We broke up. Um, It wasn't Shannon. Um, Some of you fall asleep in church. Yeah, I see you. It's okay. I see you. It's cool. Sometimes people go out of their way to tell me, I know I've occasionally let my eyes close, which is another way of saying I've, you know, I've been snoring uh, during your sermon. But then they'll say, you know, I, I, I take this pill or I've got this problem or, you know, I work at night. It's fine. Listen, there's grace for that. It's cool. It's cool. Um, and Pastor Matthew actually told me a story uh, recently that he fell asleep in the front row uh, during, during a special service, like a, like a Good Friday service kind of thing. He was in the front row. He fell asleep, and he, at, one, at like one point, he sort of wakes up and it's like dead silent. he's like, "Why is it silent?" And everyone's looking at him, and the guy in front goes, "Oh, good of you to join us again." We were wondering when you were going to be awake." He said, "I'll never sit in the front again." <laughs> so some of us, we, we've all had our issues at times, falling asleep when we're supposed to be awake. How much more important is it to not be caught asleep, spiritually at the return of Jesus Christ? So Let's just for a few minutes here at the end, let's talk about two ways not to be caught sleeping when the Lord returns. Two ways not to be caught sleeping. One, first way, is that we need to wake up to reality. We need to wake up to reality. And what reality is that? It's this reality, friends. You and I are going to die we are going to die, or Christ is going to return. But one of those two things, I guarantee it, will happen to you. That's the reality. And so the question you need to ask is, what will happen to me when one of those two things occur? That's the spiritual reality we all must wake up to. We've already seen that For those alive in Christ's return, it's either going to be the greatest day of your existence or it's going to be the worst day, your worst nightmare of your existence. And there's no in-between. There's not going to be like, I'm going to sit back and see how all this goes down and then make my decision. That's not how it's going to work. We need to wake up to that reality. I love what C.S. Lewis said in his essay, The World's Last night. I wish I could read a whole essay too. You can find it for free online, but it's really fantastic. I want to read a portion to you. He says that the doctrine of the second coming has failed, so far as we are concerned, if it does not make us realize that at every moment of every year in our lives dawns this question: What if this present were the world's last night? We can perhaps train ourselves to ask more and more often how the things which we are saying or doing or failing to do at each moment will look when the irresistible light streams in upon upon it, that light which is so different from the light of this world, and yet even now we know just enough of it to take it into account. And then he gives this illustration, women sometimes have the problem of trying to judge by artificial light how a dress will look during the daylight. Some of you women can relate to that. You know, you try it on the dressing room. You're like, oh, this is great. I look amazing. And then you get out and the daylight, and you're like, what was I thinking? Right? You've experienced that, and husbands just say you look amazing all the time. That's always the right answer. But that's his point. So Some of you struggle with that. And then he says, this is very much like the problem of all of us, to dress our souls not for the electric lights of this present world, but for the daylight of the next. The good dress is the one that will face that light, for the light will last forever. You hear what C.S. Lewis is saying? Do not be fooled into thinking that we can sort of live however we want because we have all the time in the world. We, you know, we don't have to take account of our lives. Don't be fooled by that. Don't be fooled into thinking that the dress that you are wearing, the dress of popularity or success or money or morality or ambition or your appearance or whatever dress it is, will be the dress that can face the light of eternity. So how will we dress for eternity? What garb will we put on? Well, there's only one garb that can prepare us for that light that will shine into our souls. And that garb is the garb of Jesus Christ. That dress is the dress of Jesus Christ. That suit is a suit of Jesus Christ and him alone. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one person that can speak on your behalf before God the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. There is only one mediator, the Bible says, between God and man, and that is the man Jesus Christ. And so if you're outside of Christ, you're outside of eternity, friend. But if you put on Christ... Friends, you are in eternity forever. And so if you are here today, let me just speak to those that are here, and maybe you're, you're realizing that the, the, what, the garb that you're wearing, the wardrobe you're wearing is one of this world, and you're not, you haven't put on Christ. You haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Friends, don't, don't roll the dice for another Sunday hearing this message. Don't roll the dice. You're playing, essentially, you're, you're, you're playing Russian roulette with your eternity when you do that. Don't say, oh, you know, I'll get another chance. Yeah, I'll commit my life when I get older. I'll, I'll commit my life after, you know, I, I figure out my addiction issues. I'll give my life to the Lord, you know, after I get a steady job. I'll give my life to the Lord when I have kids. I'll give my life to the Lord when I retire and get done doing the things I want to do. Don't fool yourself. The devil loves that stuff. The devil's favorite word is tomorrow. But the Bible says today is a day of salvation. Today, not another day, today. Friend, choose this day to put on Christ. The second thing we can wake up to, not only waking up to reality, wake up, friends, to your purpose Wake up to your purpose. Verse 37, Jesus says in the parable that this this, uh, owner of the house leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and he tells the one at the door to keep watch. This parable is absolutely for us, isn't it? What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I came to this earth with a purpose. And what was his purpose? To pay the penalty for our sin before the Father, to bridge the gap between man and God. That our sin created, pay all of our sin on the cross, resurrect with power, and go to the Father's side. That's why he came the first time. And he leaves the house, that is this planet, this mission, he leaves it to who? To us. He leaves it to us. And he assigns us different tasks. We don't all have the same one. We don't all have the same gifts. We don't all have the same experiences, all the same talents, We don't all have the same families. We don't all have the same opportunities. But he's given us, as his image bearers, the responsibility for the house. What is it that we'll do with it? What will we do with the mission? That's really what this is all about. He says, get busy with the task that I've given you. Do you know your purpose? Do you know why you're here? This week, I spoke separately with two women, two very talented, bright, accomplished women. In both cases, the, the subject of the purpose of life came up. And, uh, but the, the thing was, both of the, the two of them were walking two very different paths in discovering that. Both were busy, both had full schedules, both had good jobs, but one was living within her purpose and the other one had no idea what her purpose was. One was seeking the wisdom of, this, of, the, of, this, uh, of the word, of God's word, and in prayer to discover her purpose. The other one was seeking the wisdom of this world and her own flesh to discover her purpose. I guess the American dream of some version of that. One had clarity and intentionality. The other one... Fog and disorientation. One was filled with joy and excitement and peace as she pursued God's purpose for her life, and the other was filled with anxiety and fear, having no clue for why she was here. Which of those two stories do you relate to more? Do you know why you're here? Do you know how God built you and designed you with his image to bear his image in this world? Are you too busy just chasing your own or someone else's for you, your mom's or your dad's or the world's? What is your purpose? I love that illustration, uh, that story in Chariots of Fire, the great movie about the racer, uh, the distance runner, Eric Little, when he says that God made me fast and when I run I feel his pleasure." That's someone who understood why God made them. Do you know why you're here? Friends, life is incredibly short, and it's way too short to be wasted. Do you know why God made you? To what end? For what task? For what people? Awaken to your purpose and discover it. How do we discover it? We'll discover it in his word. Do you know most of what God wants you to do? Most of his purpose is right here in scripture. Don't read your horoscope and try to figure out what you're supposed to do that day. Read the word of God. It'll tell you what to do. Pray, get busy doing the things of the Lord. Find out what God is doing among you here in the church and get busy doing it. And in the midst of that, you will discover why you are here. So, we made it to the end of the world as we know it. I hope you feel prepared. Uh, this is it in Mark 13, but n- starting next week, we're going to start Missions Month, as Pastor Matthew said. We're going to be in First Peter, and this is really a continuation of this theme. It's sort of part two, because here in, this, in, the, in, this, uh, in, the, in First Peter, he's going to prepare us. For life in the trenches, life in warfare, life in suffering, how do we live on mission? How do we be good servants of the house house and the, the task that he has given us so that we don't fall asleep? Let's say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has not left us without purpose. You're a God who has showed us exactly what you want us to do in your word and why we're here. I pray for anyone that's here today that has been busy chasing a purpose of this world or their own desires and has never stopped to ask God, why am I here? May you direct that person through your word, through prayer to their purpose. Lord, we also pray for those that are here that have been gambling with their eternity. And maybe they've delayed coming to you. Maybe they've resisted the call of your spirit to come to Jesus. That today would be the day of salvation. That today would be the day that they admit that they are a sinner. They are separated from a holy God. And whether it's through death or the moment you return, outside of a relationship with Jesus, disaster awaits them an eternity outside of the coming kingdom. Lord, I pray that today would be the day in that, that they would invite you into their life, ask for your forgiveness forever. Trust in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They begin walking with you so they can be prepared for eternity. If that's you today, You can use that connection card in the seat back in front of you. And on the back, you can check the box that you'd like to to make a decision for the Lord today. We can follow up with you. We can pray for you. And we can support you. So, Lord, today as we walk out these doors, may you prepare us for the world to come. In Jesus' name, amen.